Happy Monday, listeners. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Dave McConaughey, and joining me today is Candace Mixon. Welcome, Candace. Hi, Dave. It is great to have you here. Normally, you are in firm control of our Twitter account, secretly behind the scenes, letting everyone know what the deal is, what the latest word is. But today, you were in the interviewer's seat. Can you tell everyone who's listening what they should be looking forward to in today's episode? Sure. So I talked with Richard McGregor about his new book, Islam and the Devotional Objects, Seeing Religion in Egypt and Syria. And the main takeaway that we had in this conversation was that we looked at objects and we thought through material culture in ways that they resist easy categorization and easy sort of decoding. So objects that push back, take us in unexpected directions. And we also get a little bit of methodology of how to maybe not go with a preconceived notion of what the object means, but follow its history, follow its biography, and see where it takes you. So I think that that's kind of the main tenor of the conversation. And within that, we talk a little bit about aesthetics and other methods in visual culture and religious studies more broadly. Gosh, I can't wait. Can you tell me a little bit about what images that we're going to be hearing about? Yeah, so we'll be hearing about some images and objects that are sort of not always studied within context of Islamic studies or religious studies or not thought about a ton. Um, so some can include something called a mahmal that you'll hear mentioned. Um, and so that's basically, you could think of it like a little tent or a little palanquin that goes on top of perhaps a camel in a processional way. And before, that used to be used to perhaps carry people or heads of state or something like that. But it takes this cool turn where it carries instead a processional object. So giving it this elevated status. And that object could be something like a keswa, uh, which is a fabric that wraps the Kaaba, which is in the center of Mecca and a part of the ritual Hajj in Islam. So that's one object that'll come up quite a bit. Another one that will come up is just the idea of processional or religious banners. Um, these might go along with a procession such as the Mahmal sort of traveling through a city or traveling to Mecca. And the thing that we discuss a little bit related to these religious banners is that they also resist easy categorization because they're both ephemeral and they're difficult to kind of see and read on the fly. In a museum, when they're laid flat, or perhaps um, somewhere else, you know, if you take an image, they're laid flat, but and you can read them easily. But in their ritual practice and in their movement, they're very difficult to sort of discern. So we think about questions like that of movement, ephemerality, and then we get into some museum things as well. I can't wait. Well, I hope the audience looks forward to our episode, Following the Objects, Seeing Religion in Egypt and Syria with Richard McGregor. Take it away. All right. Well, I am here today on the Zoom universe with Dr. Richard McGregor, and welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Richard, how are you doing today? Thank you. Thanks, Kent. It's great to be here with you. Good. Um, well, it's my extreme honor to have um, Richard here, mainly because he was my undergraduate advisor when I was but a, a young scholar of religion at Vanderbilt University, um, first 
completing the Islamic studies minor at Vanderbilt. Um, so definitely a formative vent mentor, which is really special to, to reconnect with. Um, so he has a new book out, um, which is called Islam and the Devotional Object, Seeing Religion in Egypt and Syria. And it's out on Cambridge University Press this year. Um, prior to that, you did a critical Arabic edition and English translation with Len Goodman of The Case of the Animals versus Man Before the King of the Jinn. And your first book was Sanctity and Mysticism in Medieval Egypt, The Wafa Sufi Order and the Legacy of Ibn Arabi. Um, so definitely wonderful trajectory of scholarship, um, but today we'll, we'll really focus in on, on this most recent book. Sounds good? Great, great. Awesome. Um, so I was going to mention that in reading the introduction to this book, um, if, if I personally were teaching a, you know, theory and method in the study of religion course or something, you know, kind of going over religious studies approaches um, and aesthetics, I could easily assign this chapter, um, this introduction. And I think I like it because it's a really good overview of the sort of um, messiness and, and theorists that we don't always pair together and think through together um, as an overview of these messy and incomplete tools. Um, so you're bringing together Corbin, Eliade, Assad, um, McCutcheon, Geertz, Ranciere, Kant, you know, they're all coming into play here. Um, and it's also able to see some contributions in particular, um, you know, potentiality of Islamic theories um, for religious studies theories. So I wondered if you could introduce us a bit to, um, you know, why getting into the field of religion and aesthetics is helpful um, to introduce a book on Islamic devotional objects. Right. Well, the there has certainly been, I guess, from the, from the widest lens, right, uh, there's been a, a turn towards uh, turn towards the image, we can say, maybe in the humanities, I guess following the turn towards embodiment, right? Uh, so this this um, sort of the inheritor of uh, the linguistic turn, right, in the humanities, uh, moving to, into embodiment, into questions around performativity, Right around the senses, around experiences, right? So s somatic, haptic treatments um, uh, of uh, of uh, experience right? within the humanities. These these are um, deep and wide, right? Evolving trends for us as as humanists. Um, so. Um, within the context of Islamic studies, right, the uh, that has been pushing us towards sort of finding, um, get, getting traction, right, finding a, a ground um, between um, what we would call, right, sort of history of ideas, right, the evolution of concepts. Uh, and and that as the practice of Islam, right? Um, somewhere between that and the uh, uh, material material culture, right? Uh, material history, right? And the related practices around embodiment, right? And and the senses. So we're still staking out, right? That territory, I think, in the study of Islam. Right? 
in the sort of comparative study of religion, right, we have had, you know, significant, we've made significant progress, um, t- turning towards a vi- visual culture, right, as the matrix, right, for the experience of religion. Uh, and people, I guess, like David Morgan, right, come up pretty quickly as, as, as um, important figures, right, for helping us as religionists find right that ground. So David Morgan underlining right, uh, religion as a visual practice, right, for, for Morgan. Uh, so, you know, as we move forward to unpack right, the material culture, um, Islamic uh, notions of the sensory, right, Islamic notions, right, of the body, um, these are the uh, these are the ways that we move forward, right, um, um, with this with these concepts in the study of Islamic religion. So, <clears throat> yeah. So this this project certainly follows along along those lines, um, and part of the. <laughs> Part of the thread, well, well really, right, um, part of the way forward, the thread that this book um, uh, clings to and hopefully develops uh, clearly enough all the way through, right, is uh, the, is um, taking, is, is sort of the thread of following the objects. Well, first finding them, and I, and I talk a bit about that, about how, how, about how kind of magical it is to sort of find your object of study. Um, but uh, following, finding and following the objects might be the most concise description of the methodology of this book. Why, right? I mean, and, and, and so what are the results? What, what does that method open up for us? Why not just do intellectual history? Why not just go and tell us what were they thinking in the I don't know, Mamluk period and what were they doing and thinking in the Ottoman period, right? And, and draw, well, if, if we follow the objects, as it were, we end up telling a familiar uh, but different story. Right? Um, we, we end up talking about um, these, these, um, these well-known uh, religious discourses, right? Uh, we're talking right? uh, poetry, Sufism, Islamic law, um, it's, uh, history, and, uh, theology, right, um, uh, etc. But we end up talking about those uh, or engaging with those discourses historically in a rather different register because we're following the object. Right? To tell the story of the object, of the religious object, of the devotional object, like to tell that story fully uh, is going to take us to some familiar languages, right? And ideas, concepts, debates uh, within within Islamic studies, right? But it will do it in an in a novel way, and it'll do it. And this is what was sort of surprising to me, to be honest. Uh, it'll do it. Um, it will take us through them in new ways. But you think, well, I've kicked around, I don't know, Sufism for 20 years, yeah. or, you know, I, I'm a specialist in Kalam. And, but you're going to engage by following the object, you, 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 you shift your 
trajectory, right? Because you're following the object. The object is marching through history, right? The object is marching through culture, right? It's making its way. Right? Uh, the object, the aesthetic, the image, right? Is is anchored, is is negotiating, is moving through this as, a, as an Islamic object. Right? And you're just sort of moving along with it to try to keep up and trying to tell its story. So yes, immediately you are very interdisciplinary, right? You've got to be, you've got to mm-hmm. be wear a lot of hats, right, to follow, to tell the story of the object as it moves. And so I wonder, you mentioned um, in the intro to the book, um, you sort of brought up this idea that um, a lot of cultural historians have favored and used, and religious studies folks as well, of sort of object biographies or the idea of of the biography of an object. Um, And I've called to mind, um, Richard Davis has done uh, quite a few things on this related to um, Hinduism especially. Um, And so I'm wondering, how do you think that it's a little different than maybe what you're thinking of, of following the object, than maybe doing um, an object's biography or that, or using that language of an object um, or maybe how it's different um, within Islamic studies? Um, <clears throat> right. So this, right. So people who are working in this area, um, I've heard it from a few colleagues um, that they they work in tension, and I mean that in sort of a negative way, with uh, Islamic art history. Not now, that's not universal, but there is certainly um, there is is certainly sometimes a contested and defended line, right, um, between art history and let's say, versions of the study of religion more widely, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah, so here, yeah, uh, the biography the, of the object, right, talking, uh, talking about histories, um, right, um, recalling the histories of objects, um, yeah, has to, struggles in that contested uh, space. Um, the approach for, the, for this book um, was to was to anchor the well was was to push m- more fully in the direction of what we would call aesthetics, mm-hmm. right? Aesthetics, the um, the capacity, right, of images and objects to communicate. Uh, to viewers, right, in 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 ways that are that are not reducible, right, to 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 language. We can, I, I mean, that's sort of a, I, I think, an acceptable current definition, right, of of aesthetics, right, rather than oh, aesthetics equals beauty. That's mm-hmm. that's really kind of past. Right? Um, so 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 aesthetics transformed tra- um, for these more current purposes uh, becomes the becomes the, the focus for telling the story of the object in this book. So, so what are the ways that we can engage right, that nonverbal communication, right, that these objects and images are producing, that they trade in, that makes them what they are? Right? What are the ways? Well, it 
by definition, can't be reduced to language. So it can't be reduced to a narrative, right? So we can't just say, oh, well, the provenance will tell us what it is. No, the pro- that's not what it's mm-hmm. saying in scare quotes, right? As, a, as an aesthetic object or aesthetic phenomena. That is not what's being communicated, right? To the viewers or the devotees or the commentators or, or et cetera, right? These objects and images are communicating aesthetically. Now, how exactly does that work? Well, that's that's a rather you know, complicated picture, and there are sort of different approaches around getting at that. But 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 the book is predicated right upon chasing down right, that communication, that aesthetic communication that goes on. So how can we do that? Right? If 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 we're using language, if you and I are using language, right, and, and the objects and images are not using language, right? Mm-hmm. Well. In that sense, we tell their story, right? So, so the history of the interaction with, right? The history of of the evolution of the function right, of an object. Um, those are those are the ways that we can get at what the object and image is saying, right? what it what it is communicating. And in the book, I I, I frame it out by by talking about objects that resist. Right? Objects that resist reduction. So they're gonna so we will talk about the objects. Devotees will talk about the objects, they'll celebrate them, they'll write poetry about them, they'll yell at them, they'll they'll right, and you and I will talk about what's Mamluk and what's I don't know, what's Sufi and what's not, etc. Right? And all this talking talking will go on around the objects, right? Um, um, but the object in effect will resist. Because none of us will, will will say, oh, well, I've nailed it, right? I can speak for the aesthetic communication. You can't. No one can, right? No one can, by definition. That's so. So, but what can we do, right? We we can. Uh, we the objects will resist uh, discursive reduction, but that doesn't mean that they're not communicating. How can we get at that communication? Uh, well, there's lots of information. Yeah. There's lots. It's, it's saying many things in many places to many people. Now you and I have to go out as scholars and and just do the spade work, right? And just follow and dig and dig, right? And 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 pull all of that to get and pull together, right? And sort of map out, right? right or in a way, or or mirror somehow, right? The aesthetic communication. So I wonder with that, I was thinking of resistance and I love um, in various places in the book, it comes up that the objects are resisting or the um, or something along those lines or that the ex- objects are exuberant or the ex- objects or are, um, you know, offensive or, or whatever it might be or to face. And so I love that kind of both agency and just in pivoting there. So I'm kind of ruminating over that. Um, but in the meantime, speaking of resisting categories, there's often been, and I've myself have talked about this previously um, in the Religious Studies Project, the um, insistence on trying to police categories of images within Islamic um, uh, arts that include a sort of maybe I think you would agree a false kind of category of, you know, the figurative and the non-figurative, right? That the figurative communicates something that is meant to be decoded or understood and the abstract or the beauty of calligraphy or the beauty of an arabesque design or or something along those lines um, 
you know, evades that. It's too abstract. So I wonder if you could say a little bit, because you also push back against that kind of, um, that position, I guess, of, of, you know, let's separate these two things out. And I wonder, you know, if, if you have connections to, to aesthetic theory there, um, to maybe help us not make that binary so stark. Right. <clears throat> yeah. So there is, um, there's a, I have a chapter, um, a chapter devoted to inscriptions mm-hmm. and the, 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 the sort of object at hand, right, uh, is, is uh, banners, mm-hmm. religious banners, which the more I follow that object, uh, the, the, you know, the slippery, the more slippery and strange and challenging and, and curious it became as an object. Like, looking closer did not uh, bring it into better focus, right? Uh, scrutinizing the banner uh, uh, <laughs> made it kind of bewilderingly um, um, ev- evasive. Right. So, right. So, the, so, so the question and, and banners and inscriptions are wonderful things, right? Because, of course, they are discursive statements. Uh, while also being uh, uh, carrying right, an, an aesthetic communication, right? So how how an inscription is made, right? Um, uh, communicates, right? Brings along with it, right? All kinds of uh, um, aesthetic. Uh, there's an uh, an important aesthetic dimension that's mobilized, right? In, with inscriptions. Um, so uh, religious banners uh, became very quickly, to my eye, right, um, a, a fascinating uh, object to study. And the um, one of the most uh, Sort of exciting parts of the phenomena of banners and how they communicate is there is kind of sort of a technical thing, but it's that banners are texts that I argue in the chapter are not really meant to be read in the in the normal sense that you and I as moderns think about reading. Yeah. Right? Uh, but they, but they are writing, right? And they must be writing. They can't be pseudo writing to to to, to function. Mm-hmm. Right? But they're not there to be read, in in that sense of simply decoding the text. They are there to be seen. Right? They are there to be glimpsed, and uh, banners are are to be carried by by bodies right through space. That's a banner at its fullest expression right? when it's waving in the wind and the camels and the kids are yelling and the whatever's are marching along with the banner. So we say, well, what, right? What is the aesthetic communication, right? Of that script? Well, it's, it's huge, right? It's firing on several different levels simultaneously, right? And, and communicating, um, communicating, aesthetically, right, as part of this devotional practice. So 
right? So a chap, so that chapter was to, right, was to identify the object, which took a long time, uh, and then to 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 follow through and untangle some of these, uh, some of the depth, right, of the various registers that are at play uh, around the devotional use of of banners. Yeah, awesome. Um, so, you know, thinking through the chapters as well, you kind of bring up objects that um, that maybe other people resist as well, that are uncomfortable with, like reformers or, um, you know, people that would say, say no to such banners or such things that maybe are deemed as unessential to the practice of, of Islam. And so I think it's at the end of your intro, you mentioned that, um, we can move away from analyses of religion that overstate the determining role of ideas and conceptual models in the history of Islamic practice. Um, And that, you know, often legal reflections and theological discourses and whatnot are perhaps giving too much weight of, of creating the idea of the object or the, the meaning of it. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about it because I really liked that idea and thinking through the, um, the limits of that overdetermination by people that ascribe meaning to such things. That was particularly useful to me as a, as a religionist, mm-hmm. right? Because it, it was sort of shocking for me to see how some of these very central, very important practices, right. Um, could, could change. Mm-hmm. And and in the case of the Mahmal, right, for the Hajj, the, mm-hmm. the, the large palanquin that was paraded yes. and went on the Hajj, um, uh, was 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 uh, discontinued as a practice. It was a central Islamic practice in Egypt and other centers uh, for seven hundred years, seven hundred years, yeah. right, and then it stops. As a religionist, I'm like. Wait a minute, religion, you know, <laughs> important key phenomena don't stop. I mean, by definition, they're, I don't know what, right? I mean, the, right, the tradition tells you why, whatever, why we have certain rights and why we have certain beliefs. And these things are not negotiable and they're not, right? And they don't come and go. And that's not part of the message of Muhammad or or, or, or whatever, right? of, the, of the revealed religion that it, well, how can these, right? And as a religionist, right, it's, 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 it's a, yeah, it's a window of conceptual opening, right? To say, um, to say, of course it does, right? Of course, that's what that's what the history of religions is all about. The history of religions is that religion, in fact, does change, right? And it changes dramatically over time. Right? Although in its voice, religion, capital R, right, never changes. It's it never changes. It's universal. But the history of religions, it's it's nothing but change so yeah so following uh objects can, can can we can bump up into some of these transition periods right uh rather dramatically right and and, and forces us to turn back uh and to reflect and to be be a bit smarter right uh, uh and more aware um around um uh issues of of uh the evolution of ritual right uh, the evolution of visual culture, the evolution of devotional practices, uh, right? Debates about licit practices, right? Um, uh, the impact of modernity, 
Right. The impact of, of empire, whether it be pre-modern or contemporary empire, right, in the po political uh, machinations and, and, and changes that are going on. Sure, yes, they affect religious practice right? and, 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 and uh, important religious concepts. Right? So uh, the Mahmal was a, was a, a wonderful object to follow in its uh, in its uh, in its evolution, right? uh, in its uh, um, rise, and the very very central and important roles that it played uh, as in as part of the Hajj, it was a key component of what the Hajj was, right? For for Egyptians and other various various other um, um, regions, the Mahmal was 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 an important part of that visual right, and religious culture. It evolved, and we have this dramatic denouement, right, uh, in 1953. Uh, uh, right, we have the debates, we have the rise of sort of Wahhab, pro-Wahhabi, Salafist-inspired um, criticism that goes on in Egypt for sort of a hundred years around the Mahmal, and the Mahmal changes, and the practice, some of the rituals change around it over that hundred years, and the, and the debates go on and on, and right, uh, Al-Azhar is saying this, and then, you know, others are saying that, and then the politicians are waiting in, right, and, and oh, aha, right, and then the last chapter, uh, sorry, the last uh, end of that story is, right, the, the, the end of the Mahmal. Well, and the end of the Mahmal, that chapter of the Mahmal's life, right, um, because to tell to to chase down the object right takes us from the public square right where where people would gather to to celebrate the Hajj right um, with the end of the Mahmal takes us to where to the museum mm -hmm. talk about welcome to the modern period right because it's a museum right so the whole idea of oh what 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 is a museum what's its a, a very modern, and in this case, a colonial, literally, mm -hmm. a colonial imposition, right? Parachuted, right, <laughs> into into Egypt, right? Which and 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 the museum becomes the space, becomes the next space for the Mahmal, right? So, right, it's these religious rights are shifting, right? These sensibilities are shifting. And then the object is going to um, find itself right in this new environment, and and it becomes an ethnographic object, or it becomes a, a, a sort of high art, sort of higher. I mean, it becomes yeah. Arab art, right? Uh, an example of Arab art, all of a sudden, and then it's going to have its career right as an object mm -hmm. within those discourses, uh, and in with with those spaces, but. Also, again, uh, on this theme of, on this idea of sort of chasing the object, um, was this, uh, like I say, right, following the objects takes you to sometimes these strange places. Um, it, it, it forced me to make the connection and to take seriously this connection um, between uh, Hajj rituals mm -hmm. and shrines. And I have worked on both previously uh, and, and yeah. not connected them, really. Uh, but this visual culture, this material culture story forced, uh, made these obvious connections. Uh, and there was this clearly this overlap, and I call it in the book, the scattering of the mm -hmm. Mahmal. 
right? So, so the mahmal as an object in this widest sense, but uh, sort of scatters. And, and what I'm trying to get at there is, is to account for the taking up of what we could call for our purposes, mahmal practices mm-hmm. in and around shrines right? and, and right, saintly based uh, shrines. So uh, the, the, the funerary rituals and the use of, uh, of funerary coverings, right? Again, inscriptions mm-hmm. um, and this practice of, um, of um, parading with a shrine mahmal right, in Egypt, uh, the, the more I looked, right? The more I would find of these sort of mini versions of the Hajj mm-hmm. Mahmal, but they were based on saint shrines throughout Egypt. So Delta, Upper Egypt, yeah. etc. cetera. Um, um, you know, the Mamluk, we, I mean, even, you know, pretty quickly we go back into the sources in Ottoman and we, and we just don't have sources in, in, in fine-grained material. But I'm, I'd be, I'm, I'm curious to imagine how far back this goes. But I... Anyways, in the chapter, I talk about the scattering of the Mahmal and these Mahmal practices mm-hmm. um, sort of take root throughout Egypt, but centered, but they're not called Hajj rites anymore at that point. They're called Mulid rites or, mm-hmm. you know, the, the love of Ahlul Bayt shrines. And, 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 and we've always paraded CD so-and-so's, the covering of St. So-and-so's shrine we put it on the back of a camel and it and it's pointed like at the mahmal and we go on the you know around the town and we stop at the various places just like the mahmal in cairo but we have these sort of small regional versions of it mm-hmm. uh so you know what how do we think about that how 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 do we make sense of of this practice well methodologically right this was the opening it forced Right, these connections to be made. Right, at least for this chapter. Right, what happened to the Mahmal when it? Well, in a sense, the Mahmal scattered out throughout through the landscape. Yeah, right? and the Mahmal idea and image and form and object lives. It it lives on, but it lives on in this right in yet another, yet another right interesting and and, and rather discreetly different chapter right of its yeah. of its life even wall art or something, or yeah, just paintings on the sides of buildings and things like that, you know, just different formations of the same object. Mm-hmm. Um, so to kind of pivot back and maybe get ready to close us up shortly, I wondered, um, you know, just sort of thinking back to, you know, you sort of mentioned your your place as a religionist and a religious studies theorist. Um, and so I wonder if you could just kind of bring us back to um how this type of inquiry, thinking through, following through the objects, if there's anything specific related to Islamic studies that can kind of speak back to or inform conversations that we're having in religious studies, um, you know, anxieties that we have in religious studies about um, the collapsing of departments and fields and and things like that, and just what that interplay is between um, what you've learned over so many years of studying Islam um, and being in the field of religious studies and how that those work together maybe well sure i i i mean as a religionist as religionists right you and i um we 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 straddle uh we 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 have a foot in the um we can call it area studies camp 
right? Um, and then we're also religionists, right? Mm -hmm. So we are thinking right, uh, these big questions about the nature of the study of religion. Mm -hmm. and is there even an object for the study of religion? And uh, <laughs> insider, outsider, is yeah. that you know? Are we still talking about that? And 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 right? And, and what is the study of religion? And what is theological thinking? Right? And what what can we engage with tradition, uh, with religious traditions? Right? Um, and and how can we do that in in constructive, right? And stimulating and rigorous ways. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and well, I would I would uh, I am heartened by um, what I see the uh, research trajectories opening up uh, amongst especially young scholars right, in, in the study of uh, Islamic tradition um, right around these very rich right um, discourses, ongoing discourses right across the humanities. Right. These uh, can and should be mined, right, by us as Islamicists. Right. Yes, of course. Obviously, we 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 need to be Islamicists and strong and and right and careful in our in our work, uh, right. Um, but we are also humanists, right, and 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 we're we're religionists. So so we draw on these rich, ongoing. Uh, um, stimulating discourses around us right so issues around uh you know around uh, gender right issues around uh, embodiment right and uh, uh image um and pushing you know uh, pushing more directly around uh, ethics right and ethics as a as a critical and comparative category right rather than simply a received theological right, um, is, a, mm -hmm. is a sort of a rich exciting emerging uh, field yeah. um, there are some interesting things around in, in textual studies um, I'm actually launching out into a project on uh, on ritual on Islamic ritual and it is. Uh, and is that what you'll be doing? I wanted to also give you time to kind of mention your next thing. So is that what you'll be going back to Cairo for? Um, actually, I'll be. No. I'm, yeah, oh, I'm, I'm going to Cairo on a, a, a more focused project, which is uh, which is an exploration of the bodily engagements with devotional texts. Mm, Think awesome. uh, marginalia, right? Mm -hmm. um, think uh, the sort of devotional rubbings, right, mm -hmm. of texts, uh, tearing, uh, tears, all of these sort of visceral engagements with uh, with devotional text. Um, well, in the age of uh, COVID. Uh, Right and and the digital age, right where you, where we can do everything online. Apparently, uh, this project uh, is a terrible idea. I mean, it's a wonderful <laughs> idea, but it's a terrible idea uh, because it means you have to go. You have to yeah. go and physically encounter these objects, right, up close yeah. and personal. Yeah, and, and no one should be touching shrines right now. But nonetheless, you got to figure it out. Um, so <laughs> thank you for that. And then just briefly, is that 
part of something else related to ritual that you mentioned, um, another project on ritual? Um, I, right. So the, so, so the project on ritual is, 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 uh, it's, it's wider and, and what it's trying, what the project is doing is ritual itself, right. Is, uh, is I think literally a gigantic <laughs> field. Right. I mean, yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's been, it's been, you know, uh, um, it's been worked on intensively for, I don't know, hundred years, I mean, yeah. 120 years. So yes, you could easily quickly drown uh, in it. Uh, and, and, and we don't want to do that. Um, but we're talking about sort of emerging, um, uh, emerging trajectories in Islamic studies. And I'm going to argue that, that there are a number that will come out of the study of good old ritual because the study of ritual phenomena will bring to bear many of these emerging evolving methodologies and critical conversations mm. yes anchored in ritual phenomena right but not but not in this old reductive sense of of decoding and then trying to define what are the boundaries of ritual mm -hmm. that's that's pretty far past us um, but ritual ritual phenomena Right, are are um, still a puzzle. They're, they're still very puzzling, right? And very central, right, to religious practice. So this is sort of be the next chapter in that, right? So what are, what are some of the most exciting uh, ways that that we can get traction on this material in the study of of, of Islam? Awesome. Well, thanks so much. This is great. I've learned a ton. Thought through a few more things. I. I taught one of the chapters of the books in my material religion class, but hopefully I'll be teaching it again next year. And I look forward to thinking through this a bit more um, with, with this information in mind. So thank you so much. Very good. Thanks very much, Candice. It's a, it's a pleasure to spend some time with you. Bye. <laughs> thank you so much, Candice, for that great interview. I really enjoyed learning about the Mahmal and the religious banners and the way that we should be thinking a lot more broadly about how religious people interact with religious objects and the lives that they have that are so dynamic. If you are listening to this episode today, we would love your support for the work that we do. If you'd like to give a monthly donation, we encourage you to head over to patreon.com slash project RS, where you can give us a monthly donation, maybe just a cup of coffee a month would really help us support the work that we do. If that's not your thing, there's plenty of other ways to help. If you visit our website at religiousstudiesproject.com, you can actually shop on Amazon, buy all of your normal things, and we get a cut of the wonderful things that you buy. So whether it's books or toys or whatever it is, we would love it if you think of us when you shop and use that opportunity to support the Religious Studies Project. As always, we thank you for your time and appreciate your support. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR, and the IAHR, and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey, and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's the other guy. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox and Lauren Osborne, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews, podcast transcription by Andy Alexander and Savannah Finver, and social media managed by Ray Radford and Candice Mixon.
Don't forget you can support the project by using our Amazon affiliate links or donating at patreon.com backslash project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. Thanks for listening. <laughs>